This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. At the end of 1969, the so-called Summer of Love had just come to a close in horrendous fashion. The aura of peace and freedom was shattered by the brutal rampage of Charles Manson and his family. Los Angeles was on edge. Who knew what horrors could come next? White Winged Dove, 7.15 a.m. Mulholland and Beaumont. Whoa, slow down, there's people on the road. Phew, that could have been really bad. These trees are tough. (gasps) Oh my God. Lady, are you okay? Were you climbing in that tree? Oh my God, you've been brutalized. In Los Angeles on November 16, 1969, a bird watcher found the body of a young woman entangled in the trees and brush off of the side of Mulholland Drive. It was becoming more and more common for murdered young women to be found in LA. However, a key detail makes this case stand out from the rest. The victim had no identifying markers at all. No wallet, no ID, nothing. The mystery of this young woman, referred to as Jane Doe number 59, would stretch out for decades and become one of the most infamous cold cases in the world. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a podcast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. This is our episode on Jane Doe, number 59, the victim of a particularly bloody murder from 1969. This episode is part of ParCast's Summer of 69 event. July 22nd through August 9th, all your favorite ParCast shows are teaming up to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a landmark summer in American history, the summer of 1969. From the Manson murders to the moon landing, we're diving deep into the summer America hit a boiling point with 23 special episodes across 16 different ParCast originals. And we'll be digging into the fallout of MLK's assassination, a wide-reaching LSD cult, and rumors of a Kennedy family cover-up. You can find these specials and more all on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. At ParCast, 
We're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Jane Doe, number 59's murder, was immediately a hot topic for the LAPD. Just three months earlier, in August 1969, victims of an attack carried out by the Manson family had been discovered only six miles away. Among the victims was actress Sharon Tate. Most of the Manson victims had a severe number of stab wounds, and the investigation indicated that Jane Doe, number 59, had suffered a similar fate. She'd been stabbed over 150 times. Based on the cuts, the murder weapon was most likely an ordinary penknife. Naturally, the investigators had their suspicions that these murders were connected. Don't say it. Don't even think about saying it. It fits their M.O. Pretty young girl, looks like a crime of passion, just down the road from... Don't say it. There's no way, man. He and his freaks are in jail. I'll call in right now and make sure he hasn't moved. Not all of them. He could be slipping messages out or maybe... Shut up. Let's go off evidence. That thing we're paid to find and think about? Go freak out about what the papers say on your own time. All right. But I bet it's him. The evidence the investigators turned up was slim. Beyond her clothes, Jane Doe 59 wasn't carrying anything on her at all. A week later, on November 21st, a pair of glasses belonging to someone nearsighted was found 50 yards away from the scene. However, the police were unable to connect the glasses with the victim. They may have been entirely unrelated. DNA evidence wouldn't be used in the U.S. for another 15 years, which meant the cops had to do most of their investigating using purely gumshoe methods. Unfortunately, the lack of identifying markers or information about the victim left them with nobody to question. They had a few puzzle pieces, but nothing to put a complete picture together. Jane Doe, 59. Approximately 20 years old, 5 foot 9, 112 pounds, green eyes. Distinguishing marks, a birthmark on right buttock, scar on left breast, fillings on both upper and lower jaw, defensive wounds on hands. Cause of death, blood loss, most likely from a severed carotid artery. So we know she was stabbed until she died, and that's it. No drugs, no sign of sexual assault? No, she's clean in every way. She probably had a meal a couple of hours before. From some of the bruising, she may have been thrown out of a car after she died. Perp was hoping she'd roll all the way down the canyon. Well, I'd say we're back to square one, but it's not like we ever left. Time for us to do our job. Where are her clothes? Jane Doe, 59, was a bit of a fashionista. By checking the tags on her clothes, they found that she was wearing boots made in Spain, cut-off shorts from Boston, and a jacket from Canada. Not high-end pieces, but nice, and certainly widely varied in origin. She also had two distinct pieces of jewelry, a yellow ring with a red stone and a white ring made in Mexico. The investigators considered what this could mean. So she could be from Mexico, Spain, Boston, or Canada. 
I think the designs on the ring are Cherokee, and we can throw that in there too. Are you done helping? Use your eyes. The jacket and boots are older. She's had them for a while. Canada or Spain seem most likely. So we either head 3,000 miles northeast or hop on a plane and start asking around clothing stores? Be realistic. I know you don't want to hear it, but we should talk to him. Fine. Yeah. Let's talk to Manson. Given the nature of the murder, investigators had practically no leads to follow up on. They were grasping at straws. The closest thing they had to a clue was the fact that the Manson murders had occurred near where Jane Doe was found and that the Manson murders involved a copious amount of stabbing. Charles Manson was then the only connection that they could think to follow up on. In November of 1969, Charles Manson was already in custody for stealing Volkswagens and turning them into dune buggies, although his reputation had preceded him among the LAPD and the public. He was the prime suspect for the Tate murders and the subsequent string of deaths at the Manson family's hands. Most of the members of his family were still at large and wouldn't be apprehended for another month. Manson was no stranger to the interrogation room, but at this point he hadn't quite gone off the deep end. He still had his rock star looks and some friends in the community. The investigators brought in the forensic drawings of Jane Doe to try and jog Charlie's memory. You do this drawing, it's cool. I, uh, I know a guy who could probably flip this. You want her hanging up in the man's office. You want to make a little cash. See why I didn't want to do this? This girl was found on the side of the road, Charlie. You know about her? Found me on the side of the road once. Good place to be, better than the middle. She's dead, Charlie. Stabbed. 150 times. Why did you have your people do that? Man, I didn't have my people do anything. We're all operating on a higher power. You ever feel the power flow through you, then into him, then into me? Let's try again. Do you know who this is? Look close. Maybe. I think I know her. For real, you draw this. Who is she, Charlie? Where have you seen her? Ask me again later. Like the eight ball, results hazy. Ask me again later. Give me a name, Charlie. All right, all right. Um, we can call her Tabitha. What do you know about Tabitha? She was cool, man. She had these crazy clothes. She helped out the poor, then she died, you know? You know all that? Yeah, it's in the book. She died and everyone got sad. Then Peter showed up, my disciple Peter, and he clapped his hands. And she stood back up. Watch this. She'll be up and kicking now. Go and check for me. <laughs> Son of a... He's talking about the Bible. All right, screw it. Get him out of here. See you again, guys. See you down the road. Oh, and let me know what you call that drawing. So, what do we got? Nothing. We've got nothing. With Manson not shedding any light on Jane Doe number 59's identity, the investigators had exhausted their last avenue of inquiry. They had no solid leads to investigate at all. The case had stalled completely. So they decided to look into old case files to see if they could find any other murders with a similar MO. 
Eleven months prior, on January 1st, 1969, a victim remarkably similar to Jane Doe No. 59 was discovered. Marina Haba, a student at the University of Hawaii who had been home visiting her mother over Christmas break. On December 30th, 1968, Marina had gone on a double date with her friend. She had dropped her friend off at his home at 3.30 a.m. and proceeded to drive 20 minutes back to her mother's home in West Hollywood. Around 4 a.m., Marina's mother, Eloise, woke up to a loud muffler in her driveway. She looked out the window to see Marina standing by her car with a second sports car pulled into the driveway beside her. The second car's door was open, and Eloise could see that Marina was talking to a man in the vehicle. Eloise looked away from the window to walk to the front door when she heard a man yell, Go! then heard the sound of the vehicle driving away. When Eloise went out to the driveway, the second car was gone, and Marina was gone with it. Eloise quickly reported Marina missing. Then, two days later, her body was found. Marina had been stabbed multiple times, and she had been pushed down the same ravine that Jane Doe number 59 was found in later that year. Haba had also not been sexually assaulted, nor did she have any drugs or alcohol in her system when she died. Marina and Jane Doe's murders were strikingly similar, but while the similarities were strange, there has never been proof that the murders were connected. Upon Manson's arrest, he was also questioned about Marina Haba, and he pled ignorance. Marina was a well-known figure in Los Angeles, the daughter of newspaper publisher Hans Haba and actress Eloise Hart. And there were more obvious motives at work in Marina's case due to her fame. However, according to Hans Haba, no ransom call ever came. In both cases, no suspect was ever identified. The world moved on with Jane Doe number 59 and Marina Haba's murders, two permanent question marks on the LAPD's track record. While Marina's family mourned her and ensured her legacy would live on, Jane Doe number 59 wasn't so lucky. She was cremated and buried in a mass grave in 1970. That was the end of things for a long, long time. However, as time went by and the world shifted with it, the case would have a drastic development, decades after it had been forgotten. We'll learn what became of Jane Doe number 59 after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to our story. In 1969, Jane Doe, number 59, was discovered stabbed to death and tangled in tree branches. With no leads to follow and no way to verify her identity, her case was slowly forgotten, a tragic mystery that looked like it would never be solved. However, as time went by, the world slowly shifted. Technology allowed for DNA evidence to be collected and analyzed. 
Crude forensic art gave way to sophisticated computer recreations. And in 2002, the LAPD Robbery Homicide Division formed the Cold Case Unit, and Detective Cliff Shepard undertook a monumental task. Detective Shepard began logging every single cold case in Los Angeles and trying to find new evidence in long, dormant files. Los Angeles County has logged 22,000 unsolved murders in the last two decades alone. And while we don't have the exact number of cases the cold case unit had to sift through, we can estimate there were over 100,000. The magnitude of the CCU's work was unimaginable. Part of Shepard's job was to walk into a warehouse every day and go through old case boxes looking for something. He had several great successes putting away three separate serial killers based on cold case evidence. Rodney Alcala, Chester Turner, and Lonnie Franklin Jr., a.k.a. the Grim Sleeper. Then, after eight years of working on the cold case unit, he came across something else that was worthwhile. Okay, now I got... Huh? Hey. Hey, what's this? Uh, a bra? It's evidence. Why is evidence inside this box? This has been sitting here for 33 years. There's blood on it. Okay. You should probably take it out then. Great. Jane Doe, number 59. Can you pull the homicide report on this? That's probably in the homicide files. They need to be requisitioned. It's a real pain to find those old cases. You're not going to do that, are you? Sorry, not really my job. I can refile that box for you if you just want the bra. I've got it. Thanks. With help like that, I'm sure Detective Shepard will find the Black Dahlia by lunch. After a blood-stained bra was discovered that had been in the case box for decades, Shepard got to work. He pulled everything the original investigators had on Jane Doe number 59. According to Shepard, they had, quote, a black-and-white photograph of her. There's some rings that she had been wearing, there's a dental chart, there's fingerprints, but she's still an unknown. With the resources of modern technology at his disposal, he was able to run the ball further down the field and hopefully turn Jane Doe number 59 from an unidentified body into a named victim. Shepard pulled DNA from the bloody bra and took the drawings and morgue photo of Jane Doe and together created something that wasn't possible in 1969 a full-color, computer-generated composite photo, something that would make her much more recognizable than the forensic art created during the original investigation. On top of that, Shepard got to work developing a forensic profile on the DNA from the bra. If any family members were looking for her, they could submit their DNA and see if there was a match. Compiling all this information together was the lifeline this case needed. Shepard wanted to make it all public as soon as possible. However, he ran into an unfortunate reality. Nobody wanted to post a post-mortem photo online. It took Shepard years of hustling, cajoling, and begging. But finally, he was able to convince various missing persons databases to post Jane Doe number 59's photo and info. The profile went live in 2010, eight years after Shepard pulled the box out from the archives. This threw up another obstacle in Shepard's investigation. Shepard made the information publicly accessible, casting the widest net he could. But the world is a big place. 
Just like Jane Doe number 59 had depended on him to pull that evidence box out, Shepard now depended on someone out there to uncover the profile he'd struggled so hard to put together, someone who had been missing Jane Doe for over 40 years. By creating a high-quality forensic photo and DNA profile, he'd made a major stride forward in this cold case. But now he needed help. He needed someone out there to recognize her. The weeks of waiting turned into months, then years. In 2012, after 37 years on the force, Shepard sat down to give an interview to LA Weekly. Reporters discussed what it must have been like for him to retire. Cliff's record is astounding. Rodney Alcala, the grim sleeper, he looked into forgotten mysteries and discovered answers many had long thought lost. You must be proud of him. Detective Shepard just wants justice for these people and to finish these stories. Some of them are horribly tragic and they almost started tearing at his heart right there. Those cases he'd make notes on and say, I've got to get back to this one. To suddenly stop. For a man like Detective Shepard, it's a void. He's not sure what he's going to do after this. That's the life of any detective, but especially one of Shepard's stature. For every case he cracked, there were 10 that would be passed down the road. You have to imagine that Jane Doe number 59's face loomed large in his mind. For two whole years, the profile had been publicly available, and nobody had come forward. He'd done what he could, but apparently nobody was trying to find her. He told a reporter, quote, There is a time to go, and although I would like to continue some, especially working on some of the cases that really bothered me, at some point I have to give it up and pass it on to others. Detective Shepard felt like he had done all he could and that it was time for him to pass the baton to someone else. So when Detective Shepard retired in 2012, Jane Doe, number 59, sat unidentified on the internet with her last champion moving on. It seemed the case would never develop until 2015, three years later, when an important pair of eyeballs spotted her information on the web. Hildy, I just got your email. Let me open it first. Hurry, Elsa. I need to make sure I'm not crazy. What, these drawings? What am I looking for? Oh, it doesn't look like her, right? Two old friends in Canada had been swapping emails for years, sending forensic drawings of unidentified murder victims, hoping to come across someone they knew. We'll refer to them as Elsa and Hildy for the sake of their privacy. Well, hmm... Actually, where did you find this? Never mind. It's, it's not her. Sorry to bother you. Wait, hang on. I'm on the website this drawing was from. I just want to see what else they... Oh, my God. Did you see this picture? They say they put it together from the drawings and a morgue photo. <gasps> I think it's her. <laughs> Reed. Oh, my God. Reed, we found you. In 2015, the two friends came across the profile that Shepard had struggled to get online. The profile closely resembled a mutual friend who had gone missing decades earlier, and they had been searching online for profiles like this ever since the internet became mainstream. They called another old friend, Ann Jervitson, and showed her the information where she could submit her DNA. Ann sent in a sample of her DNA 
and it came back as a strong match to Jane Doe number 59. After 46 years, decades of hopeless searching, dead end after dead end, and one final Hail Mary move that required five years of waiting in pure random chance, Jane Doe number 59 had been found. Her true name was Reet Jervitson. She was a Canadian who had been survived by her older sister, Anne, who lived in Quebec. Now that her name was known, the LAPD had just received their biggest break in the case in 46 years. Anne was happy to help push for another big break as well. Anne spoke to the press, saying, quote, 46 years have passed since Reet's death, and I am the last living member of her immediate family. I have written this statement and am making it available to the public in the hopes that it might prompt someone to provide leads to the police. This, in turn, may help the detectives solve the mystery surrounding this horrible crime. Anne had taken it upon herself to maintain Reet's legacy. Most of what we know about Reet, we learned from her. Reet was the youngest of the Jervitson family. They were Estonian refugees who fled from the Nazis in the early 1940s. In 1951, they settled in Quebec, Canada, shortly after Reet was born. Anne said of her sister, quote, Reet was a lovely, free-spirited, and happy girl. She was very artistic, drew well, and liked to sew her own clothes. She was involved in girl guides and sang in a youth choir. She was deeply loved by both family and friends. As children, Reet and Anne were very close, even raising budgies together for fun. Eventually, Reet grew into an adventurous young woman and longed to see the world. She started her adventure by moving in with her grandmother in Toronto, all the way across the continent from her home city of Vancouver, when she was only 17 years old. Of course, some of her wanderlust may have been driven by average teenage lust. In Reet's case, she seemed to be pursuing a handsome young man, most likely in his lower 20s, who she met when she was 18 in 1968 at the Image Café a hangout for hippies in Montreal. Hildy, he might as well be Jim Morrison. He looks just like him. The hair looks like him. And he said he loved you? He did! We were two tables away, right over there, and he said, well, he didn't say it, but... <laughs> he just hummed a few bars of touch me. You're an easy mark. Ugh. Well, it's about time you had your first tragic love. Why tragic? You said he's moving to California. Well... Well? Reet, no! You're going all the way over there? For your fake Jim Morrison? You should go after the real Jim Morrison if you're in Los Angeles. It's just for a visit. I've got the money. Maybe not real Jim Morrison money, but enough to see him. You're really serious. And your parents are okay with this. They're thrilled. Okay, no, they're fine with it, really. I'm a grown-up, and they know that, and it's just for a little while. Who knows? I might even find my place there. I can't work for Canada Post until I'm an old maid. Right? Please? As soon as I can. Reet did write after she left. In September 1969, when she was only 19 years old, Reet flew to Los Angeles, California to visit her lover, Jean. After weeks without contact from Reet, she sent a postcard to Hildy and one to her family of a pretty beachside stretch of houses. 
It was postmarked October 31, 1969. It was written in Estonian, but translated, it read, The weather is nice and the people are kind. I have a nice little apartment. I go frequently to the beach. Please write to me. Hugs, Reet. While Reet's trip to Los Angeles was originally meant to be a short vacation, the postcard heavily implied that Reet intended to stay in Los Angeles indefinitely. That was the last any one of her friends or family heard from her. According to Anne, there wasn't much cause for alarm. As Reet had moved to Toronto, she rarely checked in with her family, leaving the catch-up conversation to her grandmother. Her family accepted that Reet was an adventurous young woman, and they wished the best for her as she set out on her new life, assuming that they would hear from her again at some point down the road. Of course, as time passed, her family failed to receive any word from Reed at all. Despite this lack of contact, they never thought to report her missing. Uh, to hear Anne tell the story, her family just didn't know that that was what they should do. This was pre-internet, pre-cell phone. The Jervetsons were at the mercy of the Postal Service. Besides, Reet wanted to adventure. She wanted to travel. She could be living anywhere. And Reet's family wanted to let her spread her wings. Besides, they were in Quebec and she was in California. They didn't believe they had many options at their disposal. Over time, though, they grew concerned and then worried. After several months without contact, they asked a family friend who was visiting L.A. to check in on the address on the postcard. The family friend was told that Reed had moved out of her apartment weeks earlier and left without a forwarding address. The Jurvetsons were left without any leads themselves. That was when the Jurvetsons tried the only thing they could think of. After several more months of silence, the Jurvetsons hired a private investigator. While a good idea at the time, the P.I.'s lack of progress became a topic of serious friction between Reed's father Arthur and mother Sylvia. The investigator found nothing. How can that be, Arthur? She has to be somewhere. Maybe this man took our money and ran. Shouldn't we hunt him down? No, no. He wouldn't have done that. Well, maybe he did, but I don't think so. He must have looked and simply found nothing. That's impossible. Give me his name or his number. I will give him a piece of my mind if he thinks nothing is acceptable. Let him work, Sylvia. Patience. He could still be down there finding her. The whole adventure with a private investigator is a strange addendum to this tale, and one that has puzzled Anne as much as the rest of the family. It's difficult to figure out what exactly the investigator did. It seemed as if he never even inquired at the LAPD about any Jane Doe's. Although Anne thinks it's also possible that the investigator did check the LAPD's Jane Doe files, and he was simply unable to recognize Reed from the original forensic drawings. Nonetheless, the Jurvetsons' efforts to find Reed had been in vain and caused even more heartache. And as all their efforts were done in vain, only one last clue would help point this case to its conclusion. We'll discuss this clue after this. And now, back to the story. Reed Jurvetson's body had been discovered on November 16, 1969. However, as her body was unidentified, her family searched for her for months, having no idea she had been harmed at all. After a family friend and a private eye had both run into dead ends tracking Reet, 
Only one other clue to Reet's whereabouts would show itself. This clue came from Reet's friend Hildy when she encountered Reet's Jim Morrison, a man who she believed was named Jean, in 1970, not long after Reet's death. Jean? You're back in Montreal. Where's Reet? She decided to stay. She's a real California girl. Huh? But I thought she was, you know, with you. Oh, yeah. She was with me for a couple of weeks, and then she left on her own. Everything's fine. She was happy. What's she doing now? Is she making it big as an actress? Not sure. I gotta run. I've got a thing. But wait, where's Reed staying? Can I write her? Don't know. Bye. The few recollections people had of Jean were that he was always on the move. He would never sit still. No wonder Hildy found him so hard to pin down. That was the only hint Hildy had at Reed's whereabouts until 2015. Reed's absence haunted the Jurvetsons and her friends and said, quote, Eventually, Reed's name never passed my father's lips. My mother, each year, would write Reed a birthday card. I found them in her drawer. She would write Reed's name followed by a question mark, as if she didn't know where to send the letter. Then... Through pure random chance, as they searched the web in 2015, Hildy and Elsa found the profile that Shepard had dedicated so much time to. Anne had found her missing sister, but several other questions remained unanswered. With Reed's identity now discovered, Luis Rivera of the LAPD cold case unit was put in charge of the case. To this day, Rivera is responsible for tracking down Reed's killer, while the whereabouts of Reet's then-boyfriend Jean were still unknown, and Reet's sister and her friends had plenty of information to fuel Rivera's search, there was one person who Rivera felt he should check in on first. At 82 years old, Charles Manson had kept the public just as enchanted and terrified as he did in 1969. I told you we'd do this again. You ever get a name for that drawing? Detective Rivera sent me to tell you her name is Reet Jurvetson. She was stabbed 157 times in 1969. Ah, oh, man, look at that. You redid the art and took the art out of it. My guy won't buy this one. You have the old drawing. Reet Jurvetson, Charlie. She was 19 years old. She was from Canada. Hung out with a guy who looked like Jim Morrison. You think I'd chill with Morrison? Sorry, man, you can take the doors out of here. <laughs> you know what? I believe you. You should all believe me, man. I never lied, never lied. Truth will set you free. I'm just waiting for it to turn the key. Manson would be freed the next year when he died in 2017. In the meantime, Rivera had finally crossed Manson's name off the list. He confirmed publicly in 2016 that Manson had given them no new leads. Now it was time to look at the facts. And the best place to start was Reed's postcard to her family and her friends. There was a return address, 5311 Melrose Avenue, apartment 306. If you head to that address now, you'll find luxury apartments opposite the Raleigh Studios. Back in 1969, however, it was the Paramount Hotel, next to Paramount Studios. The hotel, at that time, was converted to apartments, and in apartment 306 lived a man named Jean. Well, the obvious move would be to search the Paramount Hotel and the apartment Jean and Reed would have shared, 
but it was demolished in 1989 before anyone could have even known to check there. Even with knowing Reet's identity, having her address in Los Angeles, and knowing that a man named Jean was a person of interest, the uncertainties and lack of leads seemed insurmountable. But there was one last ally to come to Reet's aid, the press. After her identity was revealed, there was a firestorm of press interest in the story, both from the American and Canadian media. After weathering hundreds of inquiries, Anne Jurvetson agreed to work with CBC, a news organization out of Montreal. The CBC team got to work immediately and discovered there was another person in Montreal who knew Jean, an artist named Paul Robert. During the late 1960s, Robert was a waiter at the Image Cafe, the same cafe that Jean and Reed had met in. However, nobody had heard from him since at least 2007. In 2016, CBC managed to track down Paul Robert, the last thread to tug on for Jean's whereabouts. He was still an artist in Montreal. If Robert's memory of Jean was vague, it was at least suitably poetic. Robert described him as angelic, with a face that seemed to come out of shadows. Robert specifically remembered him always wearing a white shirt and denim jacket. With Robert's help and Hildy's input, a forensic drawing of Jean was completed and presented to Luis Rivera. The LAPD released the sketch of Jean, handsome with a truly striking resemblance to Jim Morrison, on September 16, 2016. And that is the last bit of progress that has been made on the case of Reet Jurvetson. The sad truth of Reet Jurvetson's case is that the odds of finding her true killer and bringing them to justice are slim. Even with all the incredible breakthroughs and luck that came with discovering her identity. There are three possibilities we can latch on to. One, the obvious theory, is that Jean killed her. Even though Rivera hasn't yet elevated Jean beyond a person of interest, his theories tell a different story. According to Rivera, the fact that Reed was stabbed 157 times indicates either a maniac or a love gone wrong. We know that Reed was at least romantically interested in John, although reports vary about the intimacy of their relationship. Who knows if it was a serious love, or if Reed's travels to California were merely the impulses of a bored girl. While Jean's response to Hildy was cagey, we also know that he was generally a hurried person. And from Hildy's recollections, she ran into him randomly. He may have been in a rush, or he may have been dodging her. We could also read the fact that Jean never reported Reed missing as a point against him, but we don't know if Reed had moved on from his apartment before her death. She may have just wanted to live somewhere else, and John didn't pursue her. Either way, he's the main person of interest to the LAPD, and the one lead they're still chasing down. So he goes to the top of our suspect list. Another theory, one that will probably never die, is that Manson was lying about his involvement with Reed's death. There are rumors that Reed spent time in places like Spawn Ranch, the base of operations for the Manson family and even that she was a witness to another Manson murder. But these are all unsubstantiated. On top of that, beyond the location and general time frame, there's almost nothing material to connect Reed's death to the M.O. of the Manson family. Well, Manson ordered his family to kill people who had slighted him in some way, or in order to make a statement. 
The family also never made an effort to hide the bodies, which doesn't match with Reed's killer trying to hide her on Mulholland Drive. On that note, the LAPD hasn't fully ruled out his involvement, and with Manson's death in 2017, we may never get a full answer. The last possibility is that neither Jean nor Manson had anything to do with Reed's death. Considering Marina Haba's similar death 11 months before Reed, there may have been a serial killer involved in both murders. Once again, there's no way to firmly connect the two crimes. Right now, their similarities are merely a gruesome coincidence. We have so little to go on for these theories. Other than the postcard she sent to her family shortly before her death, we don't have any information about how Reet spent her final days in Los Angeles. Nobody has come forward to say they knew her since her identity was revealed. She's almost as ghostly a presence in this story as Jean. We know she was in L.A., and we know what fate befell her. The rest is lost to time. What is left over is the constant feeling of loss and guilt that Reet's friends and family felt. Soon after Reet was identified, Ann Jervitson's daughter brought her two budgies, similar to the ones that Ann and Reet kept as children. Ann named the budgies Buenos and Diaz. As she looked at the birds, they reminded her of her long-lost sister and wondered if there was anything else she could have done. We may never know. With all of that said, I think the most likely suspect is Jean. He was Reed's only contact in L.A., and if anybody knew what had happened to her, it would have been him. I agree. Even if Jean was not directly responsible for Reed's death, he would most likely have been the person who introduced her to her later murderer. This case hinges on identifying Jean, which may never happen at this point. Well, the investigation is still open, and Ann Jervitson still tends reetjervitson.com. The picture of Jean and Luis Rivera's contact information are on there too. If you or someone you know recognizes anything we've told you today, please reach out to Detective Rivera. Thanks again for tuning into our Unsolved Murders Summer of 69 special. If you enjoyed this episode, check out ParCast's continued retrospective into the Summer of 69. From July 22nd through August 9th, the Summer of 69 will feature 23 special episodes across 16 different podcasts, covering everything from Vietnam War protests to the Zodiac Killer. We'll be back with a new episode of Unsolved Murders next week. If you're interested in learning more about the summer of 69, be sure to check out our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Well, several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders is written by Alex Switsky and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, in alphabetical order, Jerry Courtney Austin, Rebecca Diamond, Sky King, Harris Markson, Steve Pinto, and Jack Shulruff. 